Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about urine drug screens. And I guess this follows on from our previous episode on, on takeaway doses. So I guess we're talking about two of the more vexed issues when it comes to being on the opioid substitution therapy program, Fergal. Now, for me, urine drug screens, and I've always felt this uh, internally, is, is, is a safety issue. Um, I, I, I usually use urine drug screens for, for a couple of issues. One, to, to check um, adherence to opioid substitution um, therapy and, and the program, to, so i.e. to make sure people are on or have methadone and buprenorphine uh, flashing on their urine drug screen. Two, to check uh, for other substances that might be, um, that might be interacting potentially uh, with the therapy that I've provided them uh, and, and may cause harms later on down the track. And I guess uh, in a non-opioid substitution therapy uh, scheme, uh, if I've got someone on a weaning regimen or something, such as benzodiazepines, I sometimes will use uh, GCMS, gas chromatography mass spectroscopy, which we'll talk about a bit later on in the episode, just to make sure that things are going as expected and that there are no other, say, benzodiazepines, if it's a benzodiazepine weaning regimen that are in the system, or and also that the levels are going down. Does that seem roughly similar to, to the reasons you use urine drug screens, Virgil, or have I missed any things that you would potentially use a urine drug screen for? I think, I think listening to what you said, I think maybe you, you and I have slightly different views on urine drug screens. So I probably don't do them as often as you do. I think the indica- I think if, I think if, if we reflect on the indications for urine drug screens, I completely agree with what you say. It's all about enhancing safety and monitoring. Um, the question is, in terms of opioid agonist therapy, does urine drug screening actually reduce mortality? And the answer to that was, is that there is no evidence that it reduces mortality. However, if you're looking at it on a on a, on a personalized case-by-case case basis. If you don't do a urine drug screen in someone who's unstable and an accident happens, and heaven forbid the patient dies, well, retrospectively, it looks really bad that you didn't do the urine drug screen. So I think on a practical level, I think it is necessary. And I think that it, it should be destigmatized. And, uh, you know, for that reason, I think everyone in a service, if you're running a service that for opioid agonist therapy, everyone, it should just be routine. Everyone on your service does a urine drug screen and they do it four times a year. Uh, so at least, and certainly in, in the service that I work in, we do it at every visit. Every patient who comes in for any kind of opioid replacement therapy gets a urine drug screen at, at every visit. That's just how it does. So because everyone does it, then it's not stigmatized. And we're not trying to single anyone out. We're not accusing anyone of anything because the worst thing you can do is actually start to you know use it as a stick it's not a stick unless you're going to use it so it's not a urine drug screen does not determine whether or not you keep someone on a program but for me it may determine whether or not i give them uh, or i reduce their takeaways and we took we discussed this issue in the last in the last episode you mentioned that you do urine drug screens when you're talking about benzodiazepine reductions. I suppose they're useful to prove that the patient's actually taking the benzodiazepine. Um, so really, it's just another its another level of evidence to, to, that, that demonstrates the lack or the presence of compliance with your treatment plan. 
how often would you do them for benzo reduction and how often would you do them for opioid agonist therapy? Opioid agonist therapy, I think I'd, I, I'd probably do it less than the organization you work at. I certainly don't do it every visit. Uh, it depends on the patient and it depends on where they are in, 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 the, in their treatment, basically, and how stable the patient is. I think at the start of, of treatment, I'd probably do a urine drug screen maybe at the first visit just to, just so I'm aware roughly of what other substances may be going in. And sometimes I do a quasi-urine drug screen such as, oh, look, if I were to do a urine drug screen, what do you think that urine drug screen would show? So sometimes I use that as part of a history taking and then patients yeah. usually kind of open up yeah. a bit more. So I find that quite a useful intervention and tool to use. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would probably do one at the start. I would doubt I'd ever do more than three or four a year, probably less than that as well, for opioid substitution therapy. Again, depending on the patient, um, if, if I've got someone jumping in and off treatment, very unstable, I'm concerned about polypharmacy risks, um, and if I'm contemplating giving takeaways to someone um, and I'm concerned about, uh, again, those polypharmacy risks potentially, I may or may not do a urine drug screen. So it's hard to give a hard and fast rule, but not every visit, uh, on average, Three, three, four times a year, I'd probably say, for opioid yeah. substitution therapy. So there are guidelines out there that suggest three to four times a year is an appropriate number of urine drug screens to do for someone on opioid agonist therapy, certainly in the community. Um, but that, in my service, as I said, you know, it, it's because of the stigma issue. It's just normalized by basically everyone gets it done at every visit. Otherwise, you do start getting questions about, well, why am I doing it this time? Why are you picking on me this time? But I also agree with you. I, I also say, what, what, you know, I ask patients to tell me what that's going to say. Yep. And I think with the benzodiazepine weaning regimen, a lot of the patients, I guess you, you and I see, Fergal, uh, are patients who are taking, say, non-prescribed benzodiazepines and sometimes multiple different non-prescribed yeah. benzodiazepines. And usually in this situation, when we put people on a weaning regimen, we convert them over to diazepam and then wean the diazepam down. So the urine drug screen, again, there's no hard and fast rule there. Sometimes it's a bit of a vibe as to whether or not I should do it or not. Um, uh, but it's to kind of, A, just make sure that I have diazepam or diazepam metabolites in the urine drug screen and nothing, nothing that should not be there. And sometimes also to, if, uh, to check that the levels are going down. But again, I don't have a particularly hard or fast rule. And I'm guessing you don't, do, you don't use the urine drug screen for, for that purpose from, from what you were saying. Look, if, if I thought that someone was actually diverting benzodiazepines that I was prescribing and they weren't taking them at all, then I'd do a urine drug screen looking for a negative result. Because if they were negative for you on a urine drug screen, then I'd just stop prescribing the benzos completely. Mm -hmm. um, going back to the metabolites, this is a very interesting issue. So before we head off to the GCMS, LCMS, the first urine drug screen that we all do routinely, what type of test is that? So it, the, the standard test that we call a urine drug screen is an immunoassay test. And that's essentially an antibody test. So essentially, it, it, it's, it's a test that reacts to either a specific drug, a class of drugs, or metabolites. And if, you, if the antibodies cross a certain threshold, which is usually, de usually determined by the lab, it's flashed up as positive. So I've, I'm sure all of our listeners and viewers have come across the standard, say, urine drug screen, where rather than getting individual drugs, you get, say, classes of drugs, such as positive for opiates, positive for, for benzodiazepines. Uh, for the standard urine drug screen, uh, especially the ones that we use, it's also got methadone uh, uh, as, uh, that flashes up as, as positive as well. So that, that is a specific drug. But it's an antibody uh, test. 
the GCMS, which which um, the gas chromatography mass spectroscopy, is more a confirmatory test. So that can actually go into to more detail as to the specific uh, type of opiate or specific drug type in particular. But you usually have to ask for that. And w- with that, Fergal, that that the information you get from from that more specific test can be quite useful, can't it? Yeah. It can, yeah. Let me just go back to the issue of the immunoassay. So there's a, you know, you can get false positives and false negatives. So, uh, you know, if you're taking, if you eat poppy seed bread, you can show up positive for opiates. If you take simvastatin or ranitidine, you can show up positive for stimulants. There's a cross-reactivity there. And, of course, the false negatives, so tramadol, fentanyl, they don't show up on a, on a urine drug screen for opiates. And... I think endone, I think you've got to have high doses of endone to show up. You know, the normal, you know, low-dose endone doesn't show up on an on a immunoassay. So, you know, it, it's not, an immunoassay is just a screening test that's, that's very, very fallible. GCMS, LCMS is practically infallible. I mean, I've, I've, if you actually speak to the forensic laboratory guys, uh, it's absolutely fascinating the detail you can get out of a GCMS, LCMS. And you can actually literally identify specific metabolites and compounds and that's an interesting point because let's just clarify the metabolites of diazepam. So if I take a diazepam, one diazepam tablet, and I then do a urine, and then it, um, it then I send it for GCMS, LCMS, which is the second level test, what's it going to show? It'll probably show um, diazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam. Exactly. So you can end, you can be accused erroneously of misusing two other benzodiazepines just because you've taken one diazepam. So it's really important to understand that oxazepam, temazepam, which are also prescribed in their own right, are actually metabolites of diazepam. Now, the the other issue that I get asked a lot is, (laughs) what's the window of opportunity for testing positive after a drug exposure? Mm -hmm. Another way of putting that is, I suppose, if I take a drug, how long is my urine going to show up positive for that substance? Hmm. Would you care to comment on that? I guess it depends on the drug and it depends on how long you've been taking it for. And this is not an exact science, so I just wanted that to be clear. But yeah. it, it can vary. So again, alcohol, dose-dependent, can be up to 24 hours. Benzodiazepines, I think it really depends on the type of benzodiazepine, whether it's short-acting or long-acting. Because there are some long-acting benzodiazepines that'll be in the system for weeks, some up to 10 weeks. The short-acting benzos can probably be there for one to three days. Um, And even something like cannabis, it it really depends on how often you use it and also what the cutoff level is in the lab. So say one-time use, uh, my understanding is it can be up to two days for one-time use. Very heavy use, you can have cannabis in the urine for for four to six weeks. So, So... I guess what I'm trying to say, and probably hedging my bets is, it depends on the substance you're using, how long you're using it for, and the, the, the I guess uh, the duration of use, basically the pattern of use. Does that, that does that marry up with what you're what you're thinking as well, Fergal? Yeah, basically it does. I mean, I, the figures I've got in my head are cocaine, two to three days, uh, stimulants like amphetamines and also heroin. Um, uh, you know, up to about eight days for short, for short-lasting use. Um, 
benzodiazepines three to 14 days. But again, you're going to have an excess of that if you're using a long-acting benzodiazepine like diazepam. Cannabis short-acting, you know, a couple of days use, uh, two to eight days. So with, you know, within two days or up to eight days. But then long-acting use, you can go up to 40, uh, sorry, uh, 42 days. That's seven weeks. So if you're using it, if you're if you're using cannabis daily in large amounts, it's up to seven weeks in my book that you're potentially positive. And, and I guess this is the problem, though, because there's so many different tables about this, and it really depends what study you're reading and what table you're using. So uh, and and there's not that much concordance. I've gone through about five or six different tables, and the only thing that was was certain was none of the tables actually married up at all. So. The numbers you you use the numbers are, are variable, yeah, yeah. I so, suppose that's a very good fair point. Yep. Yeah. Now, interestingly, the numbers are variable for urine and saliva, but the numbers are very consistent for hair. I know we're de- we're talking about urine drug screens, but just deviating to hair, the numbers are always consistent. Ninety days. Yeah, but the thing is, hair doesn't give you a test of immediate use. It takes about a week for any substance to actually get into hair. So you have that that early one week gap when you've got no positivity, but then it's very consistently for all the substances ninety days of use. And I guess also, I guess to to to, to wrap up this topic a bit, a question to you: Do you routinely ask for a GCMS or or LCMS on your urine drug screens, or do you just no. ask for the screening test and then, if you're concerned in particular, you'll you'll specify what you want on? GCMS, LCMS? Well, this is the issue because GCM, uh, urine, the urine drug screen immunoassay, the screening test, is, is bulk billed. Under Medicare, you can get 36 a year. And the item number for anyone that is interested is 66626. Right? With that item number, you can get 36 urine drug screen immunoassays. But the GCMS, LCMS is not bulk billed. Right? So if you're working in the community, your patient is going to be billed hundreds of dollars for this test. So that's never going to happen. And I've actually I've accidentally written GCMS LCMS in the community, and the patient has got a bill for like two hundred dollars. And I had to phone up the path company and say, "Stop sending this patient correspondence because you're never going to get this money. It's you know this is a clinical situation. The patient's vulnerable. That you know, borderline homeless. You're just never going to get the money. You may as well write the debt off now." Um, so GCMS, LCMS is the preserve of forensic services and specialist hospital services. And certainly I've, I've, I've also, I've also tried to get GCMS, LCMS for clinical cases and they, they have, I've actually, my requests have been rejected, uh, because it's in the hospital service within which I work, they have to send the samples to another pathology lab and it's quite expensive. So I don't actually benefit from that test at all, practically. So you're telling me in your service, you have access to that test and they do it for you? They do, they do do it for, for me, but I don't, do, I don't order it routinely, mm-hmm. mainly because there's no, most of the time there's no clinical need. If, if, if the question is um, for opioid substitution therapy, methadone will come on the standard immunoassay anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I... I do find myself very rarely doing it. A lot of the time, especially in our specialist service, where we sometimes have people using multiple non-prescribed benzodiazepines and I want to get a bit of, and I'm uncertain based on the history that's been provided to me, then I may do a GCMS for, for benzodiazepines just so I have a bit more, a clearer picture 
So when I treat the patient, I'm treating them appropriately. But uh, yes, I would not say it's a routine test that I order. It's certainly not every patient I see would get it. The vast minority would probably be getting a GCMS, LCMS. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a very specialist, very expensive test, and in most clinical situations, it doesn't actually add to patient safety. Hmm. And I think that's that is a good point to explore in the sense that sometimes it does feel like the urine drug screen is more for prescriber. Uh, ease and for the prescriber yes. to feel comfort rather than for any discernible benefit for the patient, I guess. Well, other than maybe the prescriber being more comfortable giving a takeaway dose per se, but mm. by and of itself, sometimes these urine drugs, these urine drug screens, a lot of the time it does seem like it's it's for prescriber comfort. Would would that be a fair point? Yeah, and I suppose this is the thing where where we have to acknowledge the difference between you know population-based evidence, you know, randomized controlled trial evidence against actually managing the patient in front of you, you know. And unfortunately, we live in a world where we are judged retrospectively for our actions in the event of an adverse event. We, we, you know, we strive to practice safely and, you know, there's a certain amount of defensive medicine that goes on and urine drug screens can be a part of that. Because we fear retrospective judgment. Indeed. Um, and that, that is a true statement. So I guess in, in summary, in this episode of, of Cracking Addiction, we've talked about urine drug screens. We've talked about immunoassays as well as GCMS, LCMS. We've talked about why we may potentially order urine drug screens and how it may help with clinical judgment. And also what the urine drug screens can, can screen for and what they can test for. And, and, and I guess their role in, in addiction medicine. So thank you once again for joining us on this episode of Cracking Addiction. Please do remember to subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us out. And bye for now. Bye.